Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we turn our attention to The Empire Strikes Back, made in 1980. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. If Star Wars was the film that cemented the Hollywood trend of the summer blockbuster, The Empire Strikes Back officially made it clear that the public wants sequels to their favorite films. While Empire didn't invent the concept of the sequel, it certainly solidified it as a new Hollywood trend. The Godfather, Jaws, and the Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Westerns made profits from their sequels before Empire was released, but most filmmakers never truly made films that outright demanded another film to continue the story. That was initially true for Star Wars as well. George Lucas's outline for the 1977 film included a backstory about the characters, but never anything concrete about how they moved forward. When you watch the end of Star Wars, it seems very finite. The Death Star has been destroyed, the heroes are rewarded, and everyone lives happily ever after. Seeing Darth Vader escape in his fighter ship is the only thing that would set up a sequel possibility there. And Lucas seized upon that once the receipts from Star Wars showed that fans wanted more. And boy, did Lucas and others deliver. The Empire Strikes Back has long been regarded as the best sequel ever made, though the argument that The Godfather Part II surpasses it is valid also. It has become a benchmark for action sequels that would follow, and it would allow John Williams to dip back into the Star Wars universe to create new themes and compose a score that had the Star Wars flavor but still stood on its own merits. The Empire Strikes Back is my favorite score of all time. There is not one note that I would change, or one cue that I feel is unnecessary. Every note tells the story perfectly. I'm not the only one that holds this score in such high regard. And joining me on today's episode is Jim Nova, a trombone player in the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and trombone professor at Duquesne University. He's also released an expansive commercial recording of music that details Anakin Skywalker's transformation into Darth Vader called A Fall from Light to Dark, which you can find on JimNova.com. And it's my pleasure to have Jim on the show. Welcome. Hi, Jeff. It's really great to be with you. I've been a huge fan of your podcast right from the start. Thank you very much. You join a great list of professional musicians that have been guest hosts on the show, and as my previous co-hosts did, I hope you could give us a little detail into your journey to become a professional musician, particularly how John Williams' music for The Empire Strikes Back might have influenced your path to become a musician. When I was growing up, my dad would put on records of major classical pieces, things like the Firebird Suite or Dvorak's New World Symphony, and he'd tell me the underlying story of the music. So at a young age, music was incredibly visual for me, and naturally, film music became really powerful for me. When I was six, my dad took my brother and me to see The Empire Strikes Back in the theater, and one of my most vivid memories of that experience was as my dad and my brother and I were leaving the theater, I just exclaimed desperately, he can't be Luke's father. No way. I was inconsolable. But it was very important to my parents when we were growing up that we played music, that we studied music. I didn't pick an instrument until later when I was nine. With all the incredible brass writing and playing in The Empire Strikes Back and the other John Williams scores I'd heard, it was no surprise that when it came time for me to pick an instrument, 
I picked one from the brass family. Thanks to public school music programs and a great start by my band teachers, I started playing trombone. And when I was about 14, I started taking private lessons. Not long after that, my teacher said to my parents, you know, he's he's really, your son's really outgrown this instrument. It's, it's really, uh, you know, he needs to be on a professional grade instrument. So my parents bought me my first real professional model instrument, a Bach Model 42. And I love that horn. I wouldn't put it down. I just play it constantly. But the sad thing is not long after my 15th birthday, my mom passed away. She suffered a massive heart attack. And I was the one who found her and had to call 911 and watch as they attempted to revive her. You know, even today, 30 years later, it's really intense for me to talk about. I was old enough to know what was going on, but not at all prepared to handle it. But it was a pivotal moment in my family that shaped so much of who I am. For example, my mom and dad always always had a subscription to the Hartford Symphony. And my dad actually still has that subscription. Uh, well, after my mom passed away, my dad started taking me to see the Hartford Symphony in my mom's place. And on one particular night, they performed Mahler's monumental Fifth Symphony. This incredible piece begins with a dark and powerful funeral march and ends with a glorious and exciting celebration. It was just what I needed. When it was over, I pointed at the orchestra, and as everyone was applauding, I was just pointing at the orchestra, and I said, that is what I want to do with my life. In that moment, music stopped being something that I did, and it became something that I am. After that, I simply played everything and with anyone I could. Music really became my life. This is a very interesting story, Jim, and I think it shows some parallels between your life and John Williams's life. He has gone on record to say that after the sudden death of his first wife, he found a new purpose to his career as a film composer. And you could hear the quality of his compositions change after 1974 when his wife died. So to hear you talk about how your mother's passing gave you purpose in your career really resonates with me. And it's no surprise that The Empire Strikes Back had such an effect on you. And what makes the score work so well is the London Symphony Orchestra. There are not many other orchestras in the world that could pull off the difficulty that this score presents. And we have to praise the leadership of the LSO Brass Section by Maurice Murphy, who was the principal trumpet player. Murphy and the other brass principals really set the tone for the iconic Star Wars sound. So before we go on, Jim, we should tell everyone that you have had the good fortune to perform this score live to the film, correct? Yeah, I have. As a matter of fact, this summer, the Pittsburgh Symphony played it with the film, and it was a real career, a real career highlight of mine. I, I, I mean, to actually play those parts that I've listened to since childhood, it's like I've trained my whole life for those concerts, you know? So let's make some listeners very jealous. You've played in numerous concerts with John Williams conducting too, right? Yes, I have. I've had the pleasure of sharing the stage with John more times than I can count. After graduating from the Curtis Institute of Music, I moved to Boston to pursue my master's degree at New England Conservatory, and I began studying with Norman Bolter, who for more than 30 years was the second trombone player of the Boston Symphony and principal trombone of the Boston Pops. As a matter of fact, many of Norman's students refer to him as the Yoda of the trombone, and he really is. <laughs> In fact, cool. if you if you met him, you would be like, hmm, everyone usually meets him. Well, nowadays, everyone has computers in their pockets and can, like, you know, look up everybody. But back then, when I was taking lessons with him, I didn't know what he, how big he was until I saw him. And, you know, when I, I'd heard all these recordings, all these incredible things that he'd done. 
And then when I met him at the stage door of Symphony Hall in Boston, he looked at me and he could see it all over my face. He said, hmm, you thought I'd be bigger, didn't you? <laughs> so anyway, Norman had me had me sub, you know, was gracious enough to have me sub with the Boston Symphony and the Boston Pops. And that's when I first got to play with John Williams. Uh, then, you know, my first season, I moved on to the Utah Symphony, uh, my first real big full-time job. And, and my first season there was the year that the Winter Olympics were in Salt Lake City. And we recorded the opening ceremony music with the Utah Symphony and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir with this brand new piece that John wrote for the, for the Olympics. So it was, you know, really great to cross paths with them there. And then after eight seasons in the Utah Symphony, I won a position in the Pittsburgh Symphony. And during my second season there in, in Pittsburgh, uh, he, John came to conduct a concert with us. And it was funny because I ran into him in the hall backstage and he said, hi, Jim. He says, wait, you're here now? And I said, yeah, it's part of the trombone witness protection program. You know, they move us from orchestra to orchestra. And he just laughed and said, well, congratulations. This is an amazing orchestra. You know, he's he's actually done some recordings uh, with the PSO in the past. I haven't been I wasn't lucky enough to be around when those happened, but uh he isn't, you know, and John isn't really touring quite as much as he used to. It's just a few concerts here and there. So it has been a couple of years um, since I performed with him. But, you know, I've been doing all these recordings, you know, uh, overdub recordings of arrangements that I've done. And I've done a lot of his music. And I actually sent him uh, some of the stuff I've been doing. And he was, he had to have been neck deep in scoring The Force Awakens. It was that same summer, and he actually took the time to listen to the recording and a few weeks later sent me back a handwritten thank you letter. Like, it's it's hand-addressed and handwritten, and you can bet that that is framed in my studio. Oh, I don't doubt that. I have some autographed pieces from John Williams myself, and I know he took the time to do them. It's not, you know, Xerox copied, so I know right. how important those things are for you. Right, right. Well, if there's anyone who is qualified to talk about this score, it's you, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned a couple of reasons why The Empire Strikes Back is my favorite score. But the main reason why this is unsurpassed is the lyrical quality of the music. You can almost hum every theme in the film. And I've always believed that The Empire Strikes Back is the one film in the Star Wars saga that feels like a space opera. And I'm not talking about opera in terms of plot elements, although it does have those, but opera in the musical sense. Jim, I bet that a top-notch lyricist could tackle this score and make it into a great opera, or at least a good movie musical adaptation. What do you think about that idea? Oh, absolutely. I mean, John has always been very Wagnerian in his writing, especially in Empire. And, you know, for those of your listeners that maybe don't know what I mean is, you know, uh, Richard Wagner was a very famous opera composer. Wrote the the Ring Cycle and all that. And apparently, at a at a award acceptance speech at one point, John actually said, "If Wagner were alive today, he'd be writing film scores." And I thought that was really interesting. And maybe be taking a lot of John Williams' jobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they would have just worked for rival studios. You know, <laughs> that may be true. Well, over the years, I've put this theory about The Empire Strikes Back being a musical to the test by adding my own lyrics to some of the musical moments in the film, and I sometimes sing them as I watch the movie. For example, 
There's the moment after Han Solo is frozen in carbonite. Now, I'm going to play the music that goes along with that clip, and I invite you as the listener to put in a lyric that would fit the scene as the carbonite block is raised from the pit and we see Leia in near tears. So listeners, how did you do in creating a lyric for that moment? It seems so easy to put into words to match that love theme, which we will talk about a little bit later. So The Empire Strikes Back was going to be different from Star Wars long before the first scene was shot, but unfortunately, I don't think anyone suggested that it be a musical. George Lucas was so wiped out from directing the first film that he vowed to never direct a movie again, and don't we all wish that he could have kept that promise 19 years later? <laughs> but he still wrote the story that would include adding in the bit about Vader being Luke's father and other details that made the script a little darker and a lot less like a science fiction film for boys. Irvin Kirshner, who was one of Lucas's professors at the University of Southern California, took Lucas's place in the director's chair. Kirshner had never tackled something like this before, but Lucas wanted him because he had done well on low-budget films with great character development. And just about every other major member of the cast and crew returned for the film, which helped with all the hard work that went into capturing lightning in a bottle once again. And of course, there was the casting of Billy D. Williams to give the Star Wars lineup a little bit of racial diversity. The film starts off with a bang, just as its predecessor did. But after the B-flat opening blast, things change. You could sense the militaristic feel of the opening titles right away thanks to the snare drum playing in the background. Then, when the main theme kicks in again, you could definitely hear the musicians playing it like a goose-step march, a very unsubtle nod to the fascist reign of the Empire. The energy is sky high, and I feel the music is trying to say that this is not a repeat of that 1977 film. 
We're going to be bigger and bolder. I believe the first minute and a half of both are basically the same in terms of rhythm and harmony, but the Empire opening is definitely more energetic. My guess is that the second time around, the orchestra knew they had a hit on their hands and they were excited to record the sequel. John probably made some subtle and not so subtle orchestration changes as well, but after the first minute and a half, they totally diverge musically to fit the new film. And this will of course be a pattern that John follows for all the Star Wars film openings. And you'd be shocked at how different the versions of some of the music are between the recorded versions and what ends up being published for public performance. No, I wouldn't be shocked. What I hear in concerts is always very different from any of the film versions. But I suppose they do that to not make it sound like it's coming from any particular film. So Empire is chock full of thematic material as you would expect. Possibly the most new thematic material John Williams would write for a sequel. Four new themes are introduced and they take up a large part of the score. Since this film is darker in tone, more serious and less heroic, the decision to pretty much start fresh musically was a wise choice by John Williams. You only hear Leia's theme and the Rebel fanfare from the 1977 film one time each. Naturally, Luke's theme and the Force theme are played quite often, but very, very rarely are they played in a heroic key. We also get a very versatile theme for the Master Jedi Master Yoda, a theme for the bounty hunter Boba Fett, and a beautiful love theme for Han Solo and Princess Leia. But the centerpiece of the film is the sinister theme for Darth Vader, whose main goal is finding Luke Skywalker. Of course, we think he's just out for revenge and wants to kill the kid who blew up the Death Star. But as we all know now, his motives are entirely selfish. It's a theme that has become equally as iconic as the main Star Wars theme. And in The Empire Strikes Back, the two themes are played almost equally throughout. I did a count of the number of times Vader's theme is played and the number of times Luke's theme is played. Both were tied leading into the final 40 minutes. Then Vader's theme became the focal point. Not counting the end credits, you'll hear Vader's theme 29 times in the film compared to just 18 times for Luke's theme. This is showing you that it's clearly Darth Vader's movie. When it comes to the Imperial March, I think at its heart, in its essence, it sounds so sinister because of John Williams' use of just two notes. Yep, only two notes. G and E-flat, also known as a tonic and a flat six. Wait a minute, just two notes again? It seems like Williams understood how two notes could signify evil in Jaws, and are you saying he's expanding on it here? Yes, definitely. If you'll indulge me for a moment, I'll show you how. Please do. 
Because the Imperial March is so busy in terms of orchestration and rhythmic activity, the harmonic language can get a little hard to hear. So I've recorded some examples to distill down the harmony, make it easier for everyone to, to hear. Every example you're about to hear is a trombone choir of me. So think of it as a clone army of Jim Novas, as scary as that sounds. Now, first of all, it doesn't matter which direction you go from the G to the E flat, whether you go down to it, which creates the interval of a major third, or if you go up to the flat six, which is an interval of a minor sixth. They're equally sinister. This sound and how John builds on it harmonically is key to the Imperial March's iconic sinister sound. In the first two bars, he alternates between a G unison with no other chord notes to an E flat minor chord. Then in the third and fourth bars, he alternates between the G unison, but this time he keeps the G in the low instruments, you know, like the cellos, basses, and such. And then he places an E flat minor chord over the top with an added A natural. Now that A natural is very important because it causes what I call the Darth Vader horror chord, which symbolizes all the violence and atrocities he has committed. Think Jedi Temple Destruction in Revenge of the Sith or the hallway slaughter scene in Rogue One. Now let's listen to the first four bars in its original form. The genius of the sound is that it works in any key. Here's the unison alternating with the horror chord as it progresses from B to C back to the original G. And wouldn't you know it, in the original, it's the trombones who play this progression. In a lot of orchestral music, especially opera, trombones are often the bringers of doom. <laughs> in the next example, you'll hear the lead up to Luke's arrival in Bespin, as Vader has lured Luke into his trap. What do we hear? What do you know? A flat six. This time, it starts B flat to G flat, followed by a string of horror chords. Then we finally end up at F to D flat. Yep, yet another flat six.
What's really interesting to me is how this sound is so ingrained into our musical lexicon of sinister, villainous sounds that even John Williams himself uses it two years later in E.T. to depict the government agents looking for the friendly, homesick alien. Sound familiar? That is what I believe is the core of this sinister portrait. But the final detail in John's portrait of Vader is how he musically describes, as Obi-Wan said, he's more machine now than man. His busy use of complexly harmonized triplets throughout the music is John describing the circuitry and machinery that's keeping Vader alive. Here's an example. As a final tribute to this amazing and dark portrait, let's put the underlying horror harmony and busy circuitry motion together and listen to the final minutes of the Imperial March and its brutal power. Jim, is there a textbook or a manual or something that says moving from the G to the E flat and putting in the A is how to create that horror sound? Or is this something Williams might have discovered as he was composing this? You know, I don't really know of any textbook per se. I just think John really created this sound by reinforcing it with his supreme command of harmony. It's now such an ingrained part of our musical zeitgeist. And it's amazing how he has made that possible, most likely by sitting at his piano and just working out the harmonic structure. Other than the formal introduction of Vader's theme when we first see the Imperial fleet, my favorite rendition of this theme comes when Han is being tortured in Cloud City. It's the one moment in the film when the music and visuals truly show how evil Vader is. Thank you. 
That is a powerful moment. I especially like the slowing of the tempo as it gets louder. And wouldn't you know it, trombones are at the helm. I'm sensing a theme here. As for my favorite rendition of the Imperial March, it's that climactic duel scene with Luke and Vader when Vader simply stands there and overwhelms Luke by using the Force to knock him through the window. There they are, again, the trombones, bouncing back and forth between B and G, yet another flat six. And the flurry of the strings so perfectly captures the swirl of the wind. Williams gives us a tender love theme for Han and Leia to offset all this evil. It is yet another masterclass in composition. Let's listen to its introduction near the beginning of the film after Han says he's leaving. I love how Leia's theme is played before it to act as a transition from Leia getting her own theme to now becoming attached to Han. The halting performance of the strings with that rest inserted in the music suggests to me the early hesitant stages of this love story. And once we get to the scene when they kiss, that hesitancy is still there at the start, at least for Leia. That hesitancy will now fade away and the theme is fully realized when they kiss.
Ah, yes, that love theme really is incredible. It resonates a lot of my own life. Yeah, my wife Lindsay is definitely my Princess Leia. We even have a prince we even have a pair of kitchen aprons that say I love you and I know. <laughs> so when I hear this beautiful Han and Leia love theme, it always resonates memory of my strong and willful mom and my brave and loving wife. My favorite rendition of this theme comes at the end of Empire. Those are extremely, extremely touching stories. Now, we just can't go any further without turning to the asteroid field. What a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of music that accompanies the stunning visual effects and incredible sound design. This four minutes of music alone should have won John Williams the Oscar for original score. And we'll talk about all that later. So those who have listened to the Star Wars episode remember that my guest co-host there, Chris Hatt, also named this as his favorite musical cue of all time. It starts out strongly with Peter Lloyd and his flute section playing a wonderful run to set up the scene transition to a huge Star Destroyer firing on the Falcon with the Imperial March playing. This tells you definitely which side has the upper hand in this space chase. That's great music, but we have not gotten to the pièce de résistance yet. That happens as a group of TIE fighters chase the Falcon through the asteroid field, and Williams gives us a wonderful melody to show off the great brass section. But what really sells this for me is the sync point that connects the Falcon dodging an oncoming asteroid with a quick hit on the timpani. Any other composer would have made a more obvious musical statement then, but that low rumble on the timpani is so perfect that I really get chills even hearing it away from the film.
Jim, I love it when Williams writes these one-off melodies that are so specific to one scene and are never heard from again. In some way, they have a bigger impact. Oh, I couldn't agree more. The Asteroid Field is one of the many moments in the Empire score that make it my all-time favorite score. You know, the music is, it just so perfectly captures Han Solo's swagger and his daredevil nature. I mean, that line that he utters, you know, never tell me the odds, is such an iconic line that rings so true with my own daredevil nature. Lesser known fact about me, when I'm not on the stage playing with the symphony, I'm actually a huge car guy. And I'm an instructor at the high-performance driving schools here at the Pittsburgh International Racetrack. Many of my driving buddies refer to my car as Jim's Millennium Falcon, as I do a lot of personal modifications myself, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually put the asteroid field cue on occasionally when I'm out at the track driving. The hyperspace cue is another one of my favorites as well. This happens as our heroes are trying to escape Cloud City and the Empire's troops are close behind. The driving ostinato lines in the strings just propel the action, which of course is punctuated by the amazing LSO brass section. I love about that scene is how it mirrors the music at the end of the Hoth battle when we're switching between our hero's escape and Vader's arrival, using music to help the transitions. It does the same thing here, but Vader's theme takes a back seat this time around.
So let's talk about Yoda's theme. Jim, I believe your musical training could help me figure out if his theme has any connection to the Force theme. From a strictly thematic and harmonic point of view, there's no obvious connection. The Force theme is always in a minor key, and Yoda's theme is always in a major key. But I will say this, that the general shape of both melodies always outline chords, meaning if you were to hold the notes of the tunes, you'd get full harmonies. Thematically, both melodies also soar. They end up an octave or more higher than where they start out. A great example of this is in the scene when Yoda raises Luke's X-Wing out of the swamp. You hear a gentle woodwind rendition of the Force theme in C minor. Then, with a gentle chord on the celeste, which John always uses as a sort of magic sound, the tide turns. Woodwinds enter and announce Yoda's theme. Now we've transformed into a brilliant E major as Yoda does the impossible.
This is my absolute favorite version of Yoda's theme in the score. But then we devolve into the Imperial March as a harsh reminder of the dark side of the Force. Now the E major is given way to E minor, ending with an ominous low E unison in, that's right, yet again, the trombones. There is so much great music in The Empire Strikes Back that I know we could talk about every single minute of the queue and just harp on its genius all the time, but we just aren't going to be able to do that. But <laughs> I want to highlight just one more moment. And you referenced it a bit earlier, Jim, but we're going to play it out right here. It's the scene when Luke goes crashing through the window deep in the bowels of Cloud City during his duel with Darth Vader. It is indeed great to hear those trombones belting out Vader's theme as he clashes with Luke. And this is the first time we hear music played during a lightsaber battle in a Star Wars film. Now you'll have to excuse me, Jim, when I say that the best part of the cue is the trumpets blasting out that triplet from the theme. A close second might be that moment you mentioned when the strings act as the wind when the window breaks and pulls Luke out. And it continues to get better as we cut to Leia, Lando, Chewie, C-3PO, and R2-D2 trying to get to the Millennium Falcon. If you haven't guessed by this point in the podcast that Williams has a keen ear for orchestration, you'll definitely know it when you hear him transform the love theme into an action cue as our heroes make their getaway. And Jim, this is my favorite moment of the love theme in the movie.
This is another awesome moment. I mean, the brass playing at the beginning of the last cue you played is as challenging as any excerpt that's asked on a professional orchestra audition. You know, when we played the Empire score this summer at the PSO, I remember getting to that passage and saying to my colleagues, this should be on an audition. You know, well, it turns out the Dallas Symphony is having a trombone audition soon in a couple months. And guess who is the only living composer with an excerpt in their audition repertoire? Yep. John Williams, Imperial March. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised at all. So when The Empire Strikes Back was released, everyone called it better than the original, an argument that continues to this day. But even though people said it was a better film, The Empire Strikes Back did not receive the same acclaim its predecessor did at the Oscars, getting just a few below-the-line technical nominations and winning just two for visual effects and sound. I think the worst oversight in the Academy Awards history is not Judy Garland losing the Oscar for A Star is Born, but John Williams losing the original score Oscar for The Empire Strikes Back to Michael Gore's quote-unquote score for fame. Fame likely won that category because there was no category for musical scores that year, the first time in decades that the category wasn't used. And as good as the music is in fame, it's nowhere close to the masterpiece that is The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I can't imagine anything beating Empire for any kind of musical award. I mean, it's a masterpiece. But I think we have to consider that Empire was so original and innovative that many treat something new with disdain. I mean, he was using pianos as you know percussion instruments in spots and all kinds of, all kinds of great effects. But let's face it, Empire has truly stood this, the test of time. And we'll have to settle for that. So once John Williams completed work on this score in January 1980, he had no immediate film work on his calendar. The next film he would do hadn't even begun principal photography, and that was Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he would find himself very busy over the next nine months. Mere weeks after he finished work in London, Williams shuttled back to the United States for two major events. One of them was to marry photographer Samantha Winslow in July 1980, five years after they met and six years after the death of his first wife. Not much has been written about their courtship or their marriage. What we do know is that Winslow was 35 years old at the time and Williams was 48. The other big event was the announcement that he would be the next conductor of the Boston Pops, starting with their first concert in mid-March and he made his debut in this new role in style, conducting the Boston Pops as they played the Imperial March in public about two months before The Empire Strikes Back hit theaters. This was an unusual thing to do, and still is, but I'm sure everyone in attendance loved the performance, and it only heightened anticipation for the film. I went to a couple of concerts featuring Williams conducting, specifically because I hoped he would debut a new theme for a movie he was working on like he did in 1980. One that stands out was his Labor Day concert at the Hollywood Bowl the summer before The Force Awakens came out. Alas, no performance of Ray's theme or anything else. You can imagine my disappointment, but still glad to see John Williams in person. So Williams would continue to work with the Boston Pops until 1993, and I'll talk more about his time with that orchestra as we go through this journey. I mentioned earlier that The Empire Strikes Back did not win the Oscar for original score, with fame taking that award in 1980. Still kind of puts a bad taste in my mouth saying it. 
But John Williams got some degree of satisfaction over Michael Gore and fame at the Grammy Awards, winning the trophy for Best Score Soundtrack over fame, and some pretty light competition, as well as grabbing the Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Composition. This was the fourth consecutive time, and the final time, Williams would win both awards in the same year. Unlike the ending of Star Wars, the final moments of The Empire Strikes Back assures us there would be a follow-up film to find out what happened to Han Solo and if Darth Vader really is Luke's father. But it would be three years before Williams returned to that galaxy. He would keep his focus on Earthbound Adventures for his next film, which would pair up the boy wonders of Hollywood, Steven Spielberg, and George, George Lucas. And it would be no surprise that John Williams would be the glue to keep this next action-adventure film called, I don't believe this really would have worked as a, a title, it was called The Adventures of Indiana Smith <laughs> before the change to Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, Jim, it has been a lot of fun breaking down the score to Empire Strikes Back. You have enhanced my appreciation of the score, and I didn't think that was possible to do, and I'm sure that is echoed by our listeners as well. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. I've had a blast talking with you about what is my absolute favorite film score. I look forward to hearing your future episodes, and it's been my honor to collaborate with you. But, you know, on a side note, the episode where you talked about Midway a few episodes ago, you mentioned how the first time you saw John Williams conduct live was at a Boston Pops concert in 2004. Well, guess who was there, too? Yep, I was playing in the trombone section on that night. Real small world. Oh, my gosh, that would have been great if I had known you back then to shake your hand and to know that all these years later, here we are talking about John Williams music again. Yeah, that would have been a kick. <laughs> I would yeah, have been able was... to get you backstage, too, maybe. <laughs> oh, that would have been great. Oh, you don't know how long I waited outside the stage door to meet John Williams. I think it was like almost an hour and a half, and he did not come out. So, yes, I would have loved to have had some kind of connection to the orchestra to get me back there. Yeah, well, he's, oh. a, he's a notoriously uh, shy person, if you can believe it. I can. I could see in his interviews. He's he's not the the big uh, he's not a big talker, and he doesn't seem like he's very extroverted, just despite what I would think a conductor would need to be. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm very jealous that you've had to the opportunity to work with him and to meet with him all these years, and um, I'm sure it's greatly enhanced your career as a musician. Oh, for sure. He's it's been a great honor to to know him and work with him and and he's it's like playing for your favorite uncle or your favorite or your grandfather or something like that. I can believe that. So thanks to all of you for listening to this episode today as well. And as I always do, I invite you to leave a review of the Baton on Apple Podcasts and feel free to email me directly at jeffswim at aol.com. Thanks to you for joining me, and until we meet again, the Baton is down.